0: Good morning and welcome here. uh, First time I ever came to church here was in 1992, and it was on uh, Palm Sunday. And uh, many of you know the story, but I had not grown up in the church. And if you think about Palm Sunday, what you sing and what you say on Palm Sunday, the word Hosanna comes out all the time. And I thought, what in the world have I gotten myself into? They speak a different language here. I had no idea what Hosanna meant. And so uh it was pretty funny because I sat right there, right in the middle of this section and uh, sat by uh, Paul Sabino and Jenny Duncan and um, Jenny warned me that, you know, we're going to get crazy sometimes and clap, but don't, don't be afraid. And so <laughs> thanks for the warning. <laughs> and so So I had, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but. Uh, it was funny because the first week we sat over there, I didn't like that very much, so the second week we sat here, and that kind of started a tradition, at least back in my day, of the youth sitting right up here in the front. And of course the carpet was all red then, and uh, things looked a little bit different. I wanted to uh, take an opportunity this morning and, and say thank you uh, again to all of the uh, volunteers who helped with uh, deciding on carpet, all the volunteers who helped with removing of the pews in such a way that we didn't break them and removing of the carpet and cleaning and then putting everything back in and all the decorations and all that stuff. So one more time, I want to give a, a round of applause to all those people. And really, if you think about it, uh, I, I was, you know, looking at 15, 20 people around us Uh, you know, doing all this work, carrying stuff, moving things, making decisions I didn't want to make, and doing stuff I didn't know how to do. And, uh, and I'm grateful for volunteers. And, uh, if you think about it, um, when you showed up this morning, I've not counted all the volunteers who have already been working this morning. But if you showed up this morning, and you, and the fellowship hall was open, that was maybe a volunteer that did that. I don't know. Uh, if there was coffee over there for your Sunday school class, probably a volunteer. If you had a donut, probably, if if Michael left you any donuts, then uh, it was a donut that probably a volunteer had brought. We have volunteers right now serving in the nursery, taking care of children. We have volunteers right now working with the uh, children doing um, doing uh, children's church, right? We have volunteers who are up here singing. We have volunteers who will stay after and take care of things. Volunteers who will lock up and make sure everything's closed up. Volunteers who, uh, who did the offering, who maybe greeted you when you walked in. And, and I could keep going. Sunday school teachers right? Sunday school helpers, volunteers. And so uh, a church really can't function without volunteers. And so we, we don't say it enough, but I wanted to say on behalf of us, thank you, volunteers. We need you and we appreciate you and things work uh, because you're here volunteering. And so we, uh, we praise the Lord for you and wanted to thank you publicly. And uh, there are small group leaders and there are, uh, you know, people who work in Iwana and people who, you know, come to Mops and help with kids and all kinds of I could keep going and just keep going with all the volunteers. And It takes volunteers to do this stuff. And, and, uh, so we are indebted. Each of us is indebted to, uh, to people who volunteer, who agree to do the things maybe that we don't want to do, or maybe for me, what usually happens is I don't even know what needs to be done. And someone has already volunteered and done it. And so, um, We are indebted to those people who who volunteer, people who've agreed to uh, do what the Lord asked them to do, and um, very often it's with no thanks, and uh, I'm sorry for that. I apologize for that, Uh, and I thank you now. Um, And often it's a great sacrifice to yourself, sacrifice of time, uh, sometimes sacrifice of money, uh, sacrifice of maybe other things that you could be doing, but you're choosing to be here helping out in this particular way, and so I thank you. And this morning, as we uh, open to Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 26 through 38, and we're looking at another volunteer, someone else who agreed uh, to go along with God's program. An angel shows up with a message, and we have someone that we are all thankful volunteered and agreed to do what the Lord had asked her to do. And so that's a big part of what we have this morning. But before we get to our passage, before we read through that in uh, in Luke chapter 1, which, by the way, if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, uh, it's on page 855, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, just take that one. That one's yours, and uh, you can keep it. Page 855 is Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be starting in verse 26, but before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we uh, come to you this morning and uh, look around, and we have evidence of uh, newness and change and, and um and, and we're excited by this. And, and even the weather sometimes indicates newness and change to us. And this time of year is, uh, is a time when we get to celebrate Christmas. And there's a lot of newness there. New, new gifts and, and, uh, uh, new time together and, and new opportunities to celebrate and, and things like that. We're, we're grateful for those things. And, and so this morning we give you praise for, uh, for those things that you've given us in our lives. Uh, but we come here to this text and we're going to be talking about Jesus. And we are most thankful for the gift of Jesus. We are most thankful that you gave him to uh, <clears throat> to come and be born um, a little baby, a little human baby just like us. And uh, and yet you had such great plans for him, and, and he was no ordinary baby. And uh, through him, as we've already talked about this morning, as he grew up and obeyed you and then went to the cross, not because of anything he had done, but because he was being punished for our sins he he took our sins upon himself that uh, that we wouldn't have to bear that penalty and so we thank you for that what a gift and what a what a gift that starts as a message from an angel and we're going to look at that this morning father i pray that you by your spirit would uh, prepare us for our time here i pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and on your word this morning, I pray that we would not be distracted by, um, by, the, by those other things, by outside things, by what has come or what is coming or other things going on in our lives, but that we would set those aside, that we would discipline ourselves to make this a time where we focus on you and we think about you and we think about what you have and about what your word says. I pray that you would help us by your spirit to do that. May we hear from you and I pray that you would empower us, convict us to be obedient to you in what we hear. So we ask that you would be glorified in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 1. We're going to read 26 through 38. I'm just going to read that passage right now. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with god and mary said behold i am the servant of the lord let it be to me according to your word and the angel departed from her and so our as we start to look at this passage we're going to kind of work through it paragraph by paragraph in a sense and uh, this this first part here is kind of giving the context of the gift the context of the gift. And first of all, we have our cast of characters, right? We want to talk about who all is involved in this, right? The first character is God, by the way. That's a, that's a good place to start, right? We're, we're in the Advent season, and we're celebrating Christmas. And uh, frankly, it's a little uh, tempting to lose sight of exactly what we should have our eyes fixed on. At Christmas time, because we think about the presents that we're getting, or the presents that we're giving to someone else, or we think about getting to see family, or maybe we think about what we get to eat on Christmas. I don't know, but it's it's easy for us to get our eyes off of the fact that Christmas is about God and what God has done for us that we could know Him. And so, the first character is God. There's an angel sent from God, and this angel's named Gabriel. He's the second character, Gabriel. And uh, he's one of only two angels in the Bible mentioned who has a name that we know of. Yeah, there's Michael. And, uh, and Daniel, the book of Daniel, talks about both Gabriel and Michael. And um, and so Gabriel's mentioned there. He, he had brought a message back in the Old Testament book of Daniel. He had brought a message actually a couple of times to Daniel. And now here he is bringing a message again. And so Gabriel is one of uh, one of the the messengers, angels of God, who was sent with messages, right? And so he's a powerful, mighty angel of God. And uh, I I always like to remind myself when I think about, particularly at Christmas time, when I think about angels, what what's uh, what's people's response when they see a biblical angel? They they fall down, or they're afraid, or the angel has to say, no, don't be afraid. <laughs> I know I'm scary, right? But don't be afraid. And that's kind of what goes on here, right? You hear stories about angels, and it's very heartwarming and touching. And I always wonder, why is it in the Bible when an angel shows up, people get scared? And this angel shows up, and Mary gets scared. And by the way, this angel Gabriel had already appeared in Luke chapter 1, right? He had showed up and and, uh, talked just a few verses earlier to uh, John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah. In the temple, the angel appeared there and scared him he was he was scared when he saw the angel and so Gabriel wasn't some you know pink fluffy you know little little angel on a cloud he was enough to scare grown men and so that's Gabriel he shows up with a message and he comes and uh, th- there's another character that we want to talk about here and that's Joseph. Right? Joseph is uh, going to be the husband. He's, he's betrothed to Mary. And, uh, and Joseph, he's an upstanding young Jewish man. He was probably in his late teens or, or maybe into his 20s. Uh, he was of the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of King David. That's going to become significant later on. Um, and he's betrothed to this young woman. And betrothal is very different than our concept of engagement. Uh, betrothal in, in this time meant that probably Joseph had already paid part of the bride price, which was kind of the way they, they arranged marriages and did their marriages. By the way, their marriage was probably arranged by their parents. And Joseph had already paid at least probably part of that uh, bride price. And they were promised to each other, but they had not yet come together. So it was more than an engagement. I say that because if suddenly Mary had developed an interest in someone else and she had wanted to go and, and date you know uh, Judah down the road or something like that, it would be considered adultery. Right, And so it's a very serious thing. So, so we have Joseph, he's betrothed, but they're not married yet. They've not come together. One other interesting character is David, King David. Now, King David's been dead for over 900 years at this point. But he's a character in it still. King David was, uh, was maybe the greatest king of the nation of Israel. He's a hero of theirs. Even now, right? if you think about the nation of Israel, what's their national symbol? It's the star of David. Well, it's this David right? That's his star. And so uh, David is, uh, he was a very great uh, leader of the nation and brought them together. And he was very warlike and uh, uh, he was a strong military leader and he was a poet, right? He played the harp. We know from stories in the Bible, he played the harp. He also wrote a good chunk of the Psalms, Right. So David was a very interesting guy and he was a very uh, large figure in the history of the nation of Israel. And uh, and God had made certain promises to David about his offspring, about someone in the future coming from David's family, that God was going to do very special uh, things in his life. And so King David is one of our characters. He's our he's our, uh, our kind of character in absentia here in this part. And finally, we have Mary, of course, Mary, who's a young Jewish woman. She's probably 12 or 13 or 14. She's very young. That would have been the time when she would have been eligible for marriage. And, uh, and we know she's already betrothed, but she's not yet married. So she's probably in that range. At the very oldest, she probably would have been 16, right? So she's very young, uh, Jewish woman. She's ordinary in every way, except that we see extraordinary faith even in our passage today. So there you have our, our cast of characters right, Uh, this young woman betrothed to uh, this young man and this situation happens, which brings us to our second part here, the calling of Mary, the calling of Mary. Look at verse 28. So here you have Gabriel come and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That's a very, very interesting way to be greeted by an angel. I I don't know how I would expect to be greeted by an angel. But uh, it, it was interesting, and it says it kind of troubled her, right? But this, what he says, the Lord is with you, is interesting to me. And, and uh, I thought, I wonder how often that's used in the Bible. It's not a whole lot. That kind of a greeting. So Gabriel shows up, starts talking to her, and the things he says uh, are kind of unusual. And she seems to recognize that they're, that they're unusual. And so uh, one of those places where um, maybe Mary would have recognized this from is from uh, the, where, it's, where this phrase is used in the Old Testament. Is from the book of Judges, and we did Judges a year or so ago, and we talked about the different judges. And if you remember Gideon, right? Gideon was this guy, and and uh, and the angel of the Lord shows up and greets him, and he and he and he talks about how mighty, you know, uh, you know how mighty Gideon is, and Gideon's like, "What you talking to me, right? <laughs> I'm nobody from a nobody house, from a nobody tribe. You must to be talking to somebody else." But one of the other things the angel of the Lord said was, "The Lord is with you." And so uh, I don't know if Mary caught that, but it seems like God is sort of repeating himself. He's using the same kind of terminology where Gideon was called, and Gideon was going to be called, remember, to be a judge, to be a deliverer of his people in that time. And the way that message had started was, the Lord is with you. And so here you have an angel appearing to Mary, and the message is, the Lord is with you. So we have a calling, It's kind of like Mary's being called she's going to be involved somehow in the deliverance of the people and so you have the calling of mary and thirdly i want to note here for a second just parenthetically that christianity is rooted in history christianity is rooted in history now remember from the, the book of luke i know we're not preaching through luke uh, entirely right now but the book of luke was written by luke himself who was an historian he was a doctor also but he was an historian And he had not been there to eyewitness these things. He had not seen Jesus do this or Jesus do that, right? He was later on a traveling companion of Paul and whatnot, but he had researched, he had asked questions and he had gone in like a journalist to figure out what was going on, like an historian to figure out all these truths. And so as you read through his account, you see him throwing in very crucial historical details and that's because Christianity is rooted in history. It's, it's not just out there by itself. It's not just an idea. It's, uh, it's rooted in history. And so we, we get ideas like uh, if you were to l- read through uh, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, for example, we know that these things took place from chapter 1 and verse 5 when Herod was the king uh, in Judea. When Herod was the king in Judea. And so you can actually look in a history book, extra biblical history book, and find out when he was king in Judea. and That was, he reigned until about 4 B.C., Okay? So if you do a timeline, he reigns until about 4 B.C., which raises the immediate question, you know, Jesus, wouldn't he be born at like zero or one or something? Well, there, there were some miscalculations done in, in like the Middle Ages when they were kind of counting backwards and there was some weird math done that makes it so that Jesus was actually born B.C., b- before Christ. Okay, <laughs> Just the way our calendar works. It's just a mistake that was made and having to do with... Uh, with um, with what the biblical text says. But uh, so, so Jesus would have been born sometime B.C., right? Well, we have more information from the context here. We know Zechariah. I already mentioned Zechariah very briefly. Well, we know uh, that he was a priest. He was a priest of the division of Abijah. I'm reading uh, from verse 5 in chapter 1 here. And it talks about when he was serving in the temple and the rotation that they would have had. right? So that's more context. So that's, it. that's information that Luke went and found out by doing research. And if you lived at that time, you could go back and say, Huh, I wonder when the division of Abijah was serving in the temple. And you could go back and you could check through the manuals or whatever they had and figure that out. So it's tied in with history, right, history that you can look at, real world facts, real world events, right, that you could look at and you could compare and see if these things are really so. And there's another, uh, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 1, and we're not really going to get into it a ton today, but it says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. By the way, this was the first decree, the first registration when uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria. Why did he say this was the first one when this governor was the governor of Syria and he's given all that detail because they didn't have a calendar they could look at, right? so you said, well, it was in this guy reigned and by the way, it was early on in his reign or it was later on or this was the first time he did that puts together a time frame. My whole point about this is that by giving names and dates essentially, right? And, and different connections with the world going on, Christianity is showing itself to be falsifiable, by that I mean, if Luke was lying and these things didn't really happen, all any skeptic had to do was go back and see when Quirinius was governor of Syria and, and no, he really didn't give uh, you know, this, the, a decree for registration or, or it wasn't you know, during his reign or whatever. You could falsify it. If, if Luke is wrong, if, if Christianity is wrong with its facts, you can go back and prove that Christianity is wrong. But guess what? It's right. They go back and look at it and see, oh, well, yeah, it matches up right with the calendar. Oh, yeah, and when did Herod reign? Oh, till 4 B.C., and Quirinius was governor during this time, and the decree came. And so you can look at, in the real world at real actual history that this indicates, but this is not our only source to look at, and we see that the biblical Christianity is rooted in actual true history. And this is important because I heard a comment on a radio this week uh, by a man talking, and, and he he seemed to have different character, uh, different different qualifications for truth. There's truth in the real world that we can we can discuss and we can debate, and I might be wrong or you might be wrong, and we can argue that. And then there's religious truth, and really that's just sort of a matter of you know religious faith, and you can't really argue, discuss, or or talk about what's real or what's not real. Baloney, that's not true at all. The man was showing his ignorance about Christianity. Christianity is rooted in history. We can go talk about it. We can go haggle over, did it actually mesh up in history the way it says or not? And when you do that, you see that it does. There's not a different category of truth. There's religious truth, and your truth is different from my truth, and that's fine. No, there are not separate categories. There's truth. And Christianity is actual true truth that matches up with history. Second of all, we look at the summary of the gift. The gift. The summary of the gift. and We're going to uh, work through uh, verses 30 through 33 here. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, For you found favor with God. By the way, he said, do not be afraid because she was afraid, right? In the Bible, you see that a lot. Angels show up and people get afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. There's David character showing up. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. So the summary of the gift, first of all, he's the son of Mary. Okay, He's going to be the son of Mary. And so um, looking back at, at prophecy from the Old Testament, I, I'll just read it to you. It's familiar to most of you because it has to do with Christmas, right? Isaiah seven fourteen. Um, says the following. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's all the way back in Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet writing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the fulfillment that we have right here in Luke chapter 1. And then a couple chapters later in Isaiah, we read in 9:6, For to us a child is born. You can all sing it. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so there was this message that had been given to the nation of Israel all the way back in the prophet Isaiah's time, hundreds of years, six, 700 years earlier. This, this prophecy had been, had been given about a deliverer who was going to come, born of a virgin. He was going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he was going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God everlasting father and prince of peace. And that was the message. And Gabriel says, Mary, you remember that? Remember Isaiah 7:14? You learned that in Sunday school? Isaiah 9, 6, remember that? That's going to be your son. You are the virgin. So he's going to be the son of Mary. Second of all, he's going to be the son of God. Son of God. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Those are all divine titles, and they're all being ascribed to this little baby who's going to be born to the virgin. It's interesting that the angel talking to Mary sums up all of those titles by calling Jesus the Son of the Most High. Lest there be any question about what I mean, he's going to be the Son of the Most High. Now, that that doesn't mean that he's like a little version of the Most High, the second Most High, right? He's not God Jr., That's not what son of means. Son of means something much more specific. Jesus being God's son means that he is the full representation of the Father, the full representation of the Father. It means he's equal with the Father in substance. He's not a little God or a junior God or a God in the making. He's fully God. Listen to this from Colossians chapter one talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Then he continues on in Colossians chapter 2, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This child, this little baby that Gabriel is coming to talk to Mary about, is to be God himself in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. So he's going to be the son of Mary, he's going to be the son of God, and he's going to be the son of David. I mentioned earlier David as as one of our characters, and you remember the uh, the greeting that uh, Gabriel gave to Mary when he said, the Lord is with you? Well, I said it wasn't used many places in the Old Testament. One of them is that judge's passage with Gideon. But another one is very interesting. It's with King David himself. If you remember... Um, I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but there was a there was a time in David's life. David was very warlike and and he had kind of conquered everybody, you know, and he was doing really, you know, but he was kind of always at war and and he had built himself a great house of cedar, right, which was a very prestigious. He had a great home and the ark of the of the Lord lived in a tent. And David was like, man, that's a bad idea. Me living in this fancy house and the Lord essentially is living in a tent. So I'm going to build him a temple. Right. And he tells that to Nathan, the prophet, and Nathan, the prophet says, great idea. The Lord is with you. Go and do all that you purposed. And then later that night the Lord speaks to Nathan and says, No way. Not gonna happen. He says, David is a very warlike man. He's he's stained with blood, has been his whole life. He's not gonna be the one to build a temple. Right? He he doesn't need to build me a temple. I'll have I'll have his son build me a temple. But it was interesting the way Nathan addressed David, because Nathan said, The Lord is with you. Which is not a common phrase, but it it occurs in the calling of Gideon, and it occurs here in Luke chapter 1. And that's what Nathan says to David. Well, so I thought, well, maybe that's not it because, you know, was the Lord really with him in that? Well, no, he wasn't with him in building a temple. But it's very interesting what uh, what God says through Nathan to say to David uh, in response to that when uh, when Nathan tells him, yeah, go and do everything, and God says, no, 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 go tell him this instead now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, and I'm quoting from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the key chapters in the Bible, starting at verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be my prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name. Remember that? That occurs in Luke 1. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father I will raise up your offspring after you and you shall come uh, who shall come from your body and i will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and later on in that chapter in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever that's the promise that god made to david almost a thousand years before our Luke passage. He said some key things in there. He said, I will make you uh, make you a great name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, your kingdom shall be sure forever and your throne shall be established forever. And so that, that phrase, the Lord is with you, well, the Lord is with you, not in the way you thought. Not in the way you thought. It's called the Davidic covenant. That passage right there is the Davidic covenant. And when when uh, Gabriel is talking to Mary and he says all of these things that her baby's going to be, he's saying, remember that Davidic covenant? It's being fulfilled in your son. This child will be the son of Mary, will be the son of God, will be the son of David, the the Messiah. He's going to be the Messiah, the one who delivers you. Finally, let's look at the means of the gift. The means of the gift. By the way, Messiah was sent. The people thought Messiah was sent to deliver them from their enemies, and that's true. But who's your greatest enemy, or what's your greatest enemy? It's your sin. And that was who Messiah was really sent to deliver you from, not just from oppressors from the outside. You've got enough oppressor right here, and he was sent to deliver you from that. Let's look at the means of the gift, the means of the gift. Starting in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be? since I am a virgin. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. First, let's look at at the mechanism of incarnation. The mechanism of incarnation. Now, you might be asking when you're thinking about the Messiah and the coming, you might be thinking about uh, all of this. You might be asking, kind of like Mary, how will this be? How will this be? How can God become a man and still be God? Aren't we different? Isn't there a clear distinction there? Well, the angel said that the pregnancy would come about not in any kind of normal way. Instead, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God caused Mary to conceive a child who would have an earthly mother like all of us, but who would have no earthly father. Jesus was to fill the role of father, excuse me, Joseph was to fill the role of Jesus' father, but he was not the biological father of the baby. There was no biological father of the baby. He was born miraculously. This is the, uh, the doctrine that we call incarnation. It's about, it's about the Son of God himself taking on flesh and becoming man. Becoming man, not losing some of his godness, or not taking on some warped form of manness, but being fully God and fully man at the same time. He took on human flesh, becoming a completely a man. The question is, did he take on the sin nature when he took on human flesh or when he took on human, human nature? Did he take on the sin nature? No, he didn't take on the sin nature. The sin nature is not an essential part of what it means to be human. We each have it, But we were not created with it initially. Adam and Eve were not created with sin nature. It's a warped version of our nature. It's a warped version of our will. The sin nature is the want to in us. The want to to do wrong. The want to to be our own king. To be our own decider. And that's warped. And that came about after the fact. That came about after creation. And so he did not take on the sin nature. But he took on human nature as it really is. Sin nature was something we picked up after the fall. Question, why does Jesus have to be fully man? Fully man, not just look like a man. There are doctrines, there are are religions that say he kind of looked like a man, but really he's different than us. Why does he have to be fully man? Well, first of all, because the Bible clearly teaches it, so I'm going to go with that one to begin with. But second of all, though, if he's not truly man, then he cannot identify with us in order to be our substitute. If he's not really a man, he can't really step into our spot be a substitute for us. Any sacrifice that he could make could not be applied to us as a substitutionary sacrifice if he were not fully man. So second question, why does Jesus have to be fully God? Why does he have to be fully God? Well, again, because the Bible says so. That's a good place to start. But secondly, a quote from theologian Wayne Grudem. He quotes a couple points. He says, only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of all those who would believe in him. Any finite creature would be incapable of bearing that penalty. It has to do with the magnitude of our debt and the sheer number of us. And who could bear that? Only an infinite God. And then thirdly, only someone who is truly and fully God could be the one mediator between God and man both to bring us back to God and also to reveal God most fully to us. That's from Wayne Grudem. Jesus is fully man, and he's fully God, and he's got to be both, and the Bible insists that he's both. I want to pause here for a second just to kind of give a plug for an upcoming class that we have. Starting on January 8th, we're going to be doing a new class called Discovering Christianity. And it is a, it's is—it's going to last all semester. It's going to last until June. And we're going to cover a lot of topics similar to these kind of topics. How does Christianity work? How does it fit together? Does it matter that this thing is true and that thing is true? Or does it matter that this, this is untrue? or what? We're going to be looking more uh, in detail about how Christianity works. We're trying to discover what, what the Christian faith really is, what's essential to it and what's not essential to it. So that will start on January uh, 8th, and that will be over in the building across the courtyard there. And so uh, it, it's going to be a great class. I'm preparing for it uh, to teach it. I'm super excited about all the content. Uh, it's, it's stuff like this, how Christianity works so we can understand more about it, so we can know what we really believe. So that's the mechanism of incarnation. We also have miraculous work of God. Mary's question wasn't just, how is this going to work? How is the incarnation going to work? Her question was, how is this going to work? Because I'm a virgin. How am I going to have a baby? She'd never known a man, and so how was she going to get pregnant? The Bible, by the way, is full of stories of barren women. Starting in this chapter right here, you think of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were both old. They were advanced in years. They were past the childbearing years. They hadn't had a baby. Gabriel shows up and says, you're going to have a baby. God is going to open the womb, and you're going to have a baby who would be John the Baptist. Right? And you think all through the history of the Old Testament, there were barren women that God would come and open their womb because he was working what he wanted to work through them. All the way back to the very beginning of the Hebrew people, Abraham and Sarah. They were old had been trying to have babies and could have none. And so God comes and promises, you're going to have a whole nation of babies, right? And there was one time when God showed up and he told Abraham, this time next year, you're going to have a baby. And Sarah was kind of around the corner and she laughed. <laughs> I'm old. You think I'm going to have a baby? And so she laughs. And of course, the Lord kind of gets on to her. You know, Why did she laugh? I didn't laugh. Yeah, you did. And all this kind of stuff. But, but what happened? A year later, they had a baby. Miraculously. And so throughout the Bible, God has been giving babies miraculously. It is God who opens the womb. He's the one in charge of that. And it doesn't matter, by the way, what, what medicine says about whether closed, your womb is closed or not. If the Lord wants you to have a baby, you will. I know some of you want to have babies and can't. Keep praying. And I, I don't know what the Lord's will is for you. But we have a lot of examples of the Lord giving babies to people who could not have babies. And so that's miraculous. That's a little miraculous. That's, that's kind of unusual, maybe highly unusual, maybe extremely highly unusual. This situation is miraculous. She has not known a man. How is she going to have a baby? And Gabriel says, the Lord himself, the, the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, will overshadow you, and you will conceive. There will be no biological father. I'm just going to create life in the womb. It's miraculous. It's not more miraculous than any other miracle. It's impossible, and God does it. That's the definition of miraculous, by the way. And God does it all the time. It's a miraculous work of God. Mary being a virgin was no obstacle for the miracle working God. Christmas is all about that miracle of God bringing salvation to man in the person of his son who was conceived in the virgin womb of a very young Jewish girl named Mary. And finally, I want to look at Mary's simple faith. Look at how she responds. Now, she has a little question there in verse 34, but look how she responds in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She submitted to what God wanted. She just submitted to it. She had one clarification question. Uh, I've never known a man. How's that going to work out? The angel says, God's going to do it. Okay. Good enough for Mary. And she, she proceeded. I'm the Lord's servant. May the Lord do as he said he was going to do. She didn't have any idea. Uh, about these theological truths we talked about. She hadn't thought about God becoming a man and what that meant for us and for sacrifice and, and all those kinds. She hadn't thought about that stuff. She didn't know what her son would do 30 years later on the cross. She just didn't know. But she submitted to God with a simple faith. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That was her response. That's huge faith. That's challenging to me. That's encouraging. I have three takeaways that I that I want you to write down on our, from our uh, our talk today. First of all, has to do with the external evidence of Christianity. Now, I didn't cover I didn't cover much. I uh, just pointed at a couple things from Luke here, where Christianity is stitched into history in a way that if anyone uh, in the New Testament had been lying or had been wrong about the facts they were reporting, all you had to do was go to the newspaper, go to the go to the history book, and prove them wrong. Didn't happen. Christianity is rooted in history. It's not like that man said on the radio that there's some sort of spiritual truth, and you, it's unassailable because it's spiritual. It's what I believe to be true, and you just keep your so-called truth out there. And I'll, It's not like that at all. It's rooted in actual history. Get out your history book and start studying. Look at the external sources. Look at the extra-biblical sources. There are all kinds of sources, by the way, writing about Jesus and writing about these events who didn't believe in Jesus, didn't want to follow him, didn't believe in the Jewish God, and we're just reporting facts, and they match up with what we have. There's very strong external evidence for Christianity. It matches up with history. But there's also, secondly, very strong internal consistency within Christianity. Not just the external evidence, you could look at the politics to look at that and kind of defend, defend the faith in that way. It's also internally consistent. If you were to sit down, let's say I gave you a week or a month or a semester to come up with an entire religion that had to be consistent with itself, right? And put that all together and how would that all work? You would, you would have a very tough time doing that, first of all. It would take you a lot of work and you're one person. Bible was written by, uh, 40-ish different authors over a couple of millennia who spoke three different languages didn't know each other, and lived on different continents. And it's consistent. It's internally consistent. Both in the text of Scripture and in how how Christian theology fits together. It's consistent. And so both of those things, the external evidence, the internal consistency, make it very believable. The evidence is strongly in favor of the truth of Christianity. But thirdly, Mary didn't need that. Mary didn't need that. She asked one clarification question. I'm a little confused here. She asked that question, and then she believed it, and she ran with it. Sometimes we need the external evidence. We need to see that it's rooted and grounded and and stitched into history in a way that we can look and we can prove historically whether that thing happened historically or whether it did not happen historically. Sometimes we need that. Some people need that. Looking at those things has brought some people to the faith. The fact that it's internally consistent has brought some people to the faith. That you can examine it, get in there and dig and maybe... Maybe this thought and that thought. How do those work together? They seem contradictory. Oh, actually, no, they fit together really well. Hmm. I'll try this one and see how that... And people have come to the faith that way too. When I heard the gospel, I talked about 1992 in uh, my first time here. I had heard the gospel the first time that I ever recall, just a couple weeks earlier. My friend shared the gospel with me in a very informal context. He shared it not super clearly and with zero evidence given. Zero evidence given. He shared the gospel with me. He said, Brennan, you're a sinner. God is holy, but he loves you. So he sent Jesus, his son, to die for you on the cross. And if you would put your faith in Christ, you'd be made right with God. He would bear that penalty for you. Now, I cleaned it up because he didn't share that clearly. And that's all it took. He didn't give any evidence. He didn't talk about 40 authors, three languages to over a couple thousand years. He didn't say any of that stuff. He just said the gospel, and the Lord used that to bring me to himself. That's all it took. And so sometimes we need the evidence. Sometimes we don't need the evidence. But I'll tell you what, it's been very encouraging to my faith since I came to faith on such simple terms to look and see, wow, the external evidence is enormous. The internal evidence is is incredible. It's amazing. And I didn't know any of that when I first came to faith, when I first trusted Christ. So my question for you this morning is, what's God, what's God calling you to this morning? What's He calling you to do? Now, He called Mary to some big stuff. What's He calling you to do? Maybe He wants you to talk to that neighbor or the co-worker about how to know Christ. Maybe He wants you to change some things in your life so that they come into conformity with what you say you believe so that when you go talk to your neighbor when you go talk to your co-worker, they won't point and say, really? You're going to say that? You? Maybe you need to clean some things up in your life. Maybe he wants you to take a large step of faith and obey him in some new ministry or some new endeavor that might be very significant for the kingdom of God. Maybe he wants you to do something big like that. By the way, some of you have adopted children because of that. That's encouraging. That's obedient. Maybe he wants you to get involved in ministry in a way that would be stretching and maybe challenging to you, maybe a little frightening to you. What's he calling you to do? Maybe you don't really believe in him at all. But maybe you're sensing, like I did all those years ago, maybe you're sensing his call in your life to come to him, to put your trust in Christ. Maybe he's calling you to lay down your smokescreen of objections and just come to him. Maybe that's what he's calling you to. Whatever he's calling you to this morning, my encouragement to you is to trust, just trust, like Mary did. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's pray. Father, I'm challenged by the magnitude of of these promises made hundreds of years before, almost a thousand years before, some of them more than a thousand, and you fulfilled them in the person of Jesus. I'm astounded by the magnitude of that. I'm challenged by that. I'm challenged by Mary's faith that uh, she, as a, as a young girl, would humbly believe you and just proceed Lord, I pray that you would help us to have that kind of faith in you, that kind of trust in you. Help us, help us to believe in you with, uh, with that kind of uh, simplicity and power just to trust you. Lord, I'm also grateful that you have uh, given us a faith that's not just an idea concocted in someone's head, but you can look at it in history and you can see how it fits together. It can be discussed. It can be uh, debated. We can defend our faith not just by saying, hey, it's what I believe, leave me alone. You've given us a real faith that is really actually true. And we praise you for that. Lord, I'm encouraged by that. I'm also challenged by that to take that message to my neighbor just to share the gospel. And some of us in here are challenged even to believe the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that the simplicity of the gospel, the simple power of the gospel, would be the power of God for salvation to them. I pray that they would believe. Lord, thank you that, uh, that you have blessed us in such ways. Thank you that you have given us such a gift, a divine gift like this. Amazing. So we praise you and we worship you. In this Christmas season, this Advent season, we will lift you up and give you praises and we will bow down to you and not to the stuff we get, not to other gods in our lives, but we will bow down to you because you are a holy God. We worship you and we praise you. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how un- inscrutable are his ways. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen and amen. God bless you all and you are dismissed.